about practice. (laughs) Now you're afraid to say anything. What have you been doing? Mm-hmm. The questions about how to skillfully work with memories, uh, strong memories that come up over and over, uh, with emotion attached and story, and it is skillful sometimes to kind of really go into it in a cathartic kind of way. You know, there's different qualities and intensity of memories that come up. Um, And I think how we deal with them can kind of vary depending on that intensity. So, for example, there's often when one sits just floods of memories, everything from when you were two years old, and just little snippets of stuff. You know, they might have a little feeling attached, but they're not really killers, you know. And then you can just really notice it seeing or remembering. If there's a feeling and emotion attached, definitely notice and note that, always. But then let it go. Then there's um, more intense ones that really come back over and over up to the level of intensity of maybe um, past trauma that's been repressed. And that can surface as memory and retreat. And that's a whole nother level. So are you talking about that level or a level in between where there's strong memories, but it's with emotion attached, but not, you're talking about the level in between. The level, the strongest level of, of real suppressed trauma can at times when it surfaces on retreat blow you away. It just can be too intense, and so there's different ways of dealing with that. You certainly can't just say, memory, memory, and dismiss it. No way. And going into it is at times you can't avoid going into it, and at times going into it is too overwhelming, and you need to skillfully back off. So that's that's a whole other level. The medium level, and this happens a lot, again on retreat, is strong memories coming up, whether it's visual images, words, thoughts, and emotion attached. And I think there's a balance. I find when a strong memory keeps coming over and over, or any strong thought, for sure I would note remembering. But I'd also be really careful to feel, notice and feel, and really fully allow in my body the emotion that's happening with it. And to let that happen for as long as it happens. To be wary that in noting remembering, I'm not sort of pushing it away and saying, okay, stop now. Right, there's sadness, right, okay, on to the next thing. But really feel in the body, bring the attention into the physical experience of that emotion and, and note it and be with it until it fades. 
I'm a little leery of saying this, but I will anyway. Once in a while, I've found that some particular strand of memory that comes, maybe in a lot of different ways, but is coming up with a strong attack, strong emotion associated, and have a feeling there's something underneath it. Once in a great while, <laughs> once a retreat, I mean, really, once in a great while, I have found it useful to actually stop, reflect on it a bit, go into the content, just not so much thinking about, but let myself really notice the content of all these, because it's usually a lot of different ones. And under it, I, often there's some psychological understanding about myself or my personality patterns or some way I've been relating throughout my life to a particular experience that's I'm getting that information through the different memories that are coming up and the emotion. But as I say, that's once in a great while. Mostly, by far, the real understanding, both psychological and, and more on the, the level of uh, Dharmic truths, has come from simply allowing it fully to be there, the expression of the memory, but not going into thinking about the content. I'll tell them everybody else going to have it. The question is, um, 
Thank you. He's giving you the clock. <laughs> Something about trust and songs in the mind, and no, really the yeah, the sense of I. That's what I get from it. Well, the one piece I guess is, is it seems like it might the experience is happening by itself, perhaps moving into what might be perceived as a deeper level, which we can't necessarily trust that one. But um, the sense of subtle resistance in the mind, and maybe it's manifesting in all these whacked out ways, like songs and this and that, or the kind of a fear of just letting go and letting the process happen. Is that sort of the nub of it? It's a good point. It's, you're right, the resistance, that sense of I, arising and passing. It seems to have its own intelligence, our lack of, I would really say. <laughs> That's our practice. If we could at any moment completely, completely let go of any attachment whatsoever, no matter how subtle, in that moment, we'd experience our true nature. There would be no problem. And theoretically, it's simple. But your question really points to why, in some ways, we do this difficult practice so many, I mean, our whole life. Because the, the subtle clutching itself or the resistance to whatever's happening, it can experience as the sense of self. And you're right, it seems to have an incredibly intuitive way of catching us. So we'll grasp at it. You know, it's got just the right way for the resistance to come up that we'll really grab at it. Or just the right, you know, song or whatever to make us get sidetracked or fear or whatever. It's our practice. And, and the sense of trust isn't a trust that I know what's going to come next. You know, that's what we usually tend to think of as trust. If I do this and this will happen, it's familiar, I know what it means and I can relax. You know, the trust, when the leaves flutter down, they don't know where they're going to land. They don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's just, they let go of the tree, and that's it. So intellectually, we can know that. The subtle resistances that come up, the fear, the soul, all of it's just part of the show. None of it's something we have to get rid of. None of it. That having to get rid of is just another agenda, you know, but the simple opening of the attention into the resistance, into the fear, even into Popeye and olive oil, you know, is just stuff happening. And you're right, it does it all by itself. You're in the resistance, so just somehow if we could learn to trust that much. So it's time for walking. Do you have any questions about your practice? Your practice. I've got a question about the breath as an anchor 
and some considerations about observing the breath in the nostrils and the abdomen. And here, here's some background. For me, it's easier to get concentrated with the breath and nostrils. However, there's one drawback to that. There tends to be a component of visualization. So I don't, it's not body in the body with the breath, it's sort of seeing the breath. That's that component that leads to conceptualization. And my experience with the breath and the abdomen, it does ground you more and connect you with the body, and that tends to be more towards mindfulness, conducive, conducive towards mindfulness. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? His questions about using the breath as an anchor and differences he's noticed in his experience between uh, being with the breath in the nostrils and in the abdomen. What are my thoughts about that? Um, yeah, of course, there's no one way for everybody, for sure. Um, just my question is when you talk about when you're with the breath in the nostrils and there's this component of visualization, yeah. but is there also a component of physical experience at the mind oh, yeah. of the physical? It, it reinforces the observer. I'll get, if I get caught from too much visualization, I notice I kind of view things from the right. <laughs> I can shift over to the left. So I, uh -huh. if I'm mindful of that, I can say, okay, I'm going to feel this. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Put it back. Are you but using, here I don't have a problem. Are you using noting? Yeah. So do you note the visual as seeing? This is something I'm, I don't have a lot of experience with. Yeah, so okay. I've just been noticing it lately. Okay. So, um, I, yeah. Because there's certainly one isn't right or wrong. I think yeah. there is for many people, not everybody, but for many people, a tendency uh, with the breath in the nostrils to some people can find it much more focusing. Oh, yeah. But then the other side is for some people it gets, feels much more heady and for different reasons could lead into more thinking or more tightness. Whereas in the abdomen, again, this is not true for everybody all the time, so please don't think your practice should be this way. Whereas moving into the abdomen can be kind of a, a deeper moving into the body and in some ways it's a larger experience and it might not seem so finely focused. That's my experience. If I'm moving with the abdomen, I get much more into mindfulness of all the various things that happen. I don't stay with it as one point it is when I'm with the breath. Um, and I've, I've heard, I'm not sure this is gospel truth, but I've heard, passed down, that one of the reasons Mahasi Sayadaw really tries to t teaches it that you note rising and falling. I mean, if you sit there, they don't say pick your nose or pick your abdomen. They say go to rising and falling. And you have to really fight to get up to your nose. And one reason I've heard is that because they felt people tended to get too one-pointed concentrated at the nose. And the idea is to open up to all experience, not just hone in. One thing. But the thing about the visualization, that can happen at the abdomen too. That happens for me. Or with any experience where you think you're feeling it, but there's this visual overlay. Yeah. If you can not think of that as a problem, but note precisely what the experience is. So if it's the feeling tone, note the if it's sensation, note that. But when the visuals the forefront, just note seeing. And then it doesn't matter. You're, you're with the foundation of mindfulness. Just maybe not the one you want. Yeah. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, we, that's pretty much Yeah. 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 
question is about if many sensations are happening in the body, is it fruitful to let the attention be with them in you know, changing patterns they are happening and more or less at some points abandoning the breath, or should you try and go back to the breath anyway? And similar in the same lines, should you try and stay with the sensation till it ends, even if a lot of other things are happening? And uh, it's, a, it's something that comes up a lot. And... Um, as always, there's no absolutely tried and true answer, but the tendency would be that we're not trying to control what we pay attention to or to control experience. In other words, we're using the breath as a way to steady and focus the attention or the body or hearing, whatever you're using. But it's not because the breath is better, you know, and we want to stay with it. And the better your sitting is means the more you're with the breath. It's not true at all. And everyone's practice will differ, and your practice will differ at different times. But there'll be times when there are a lot of sensations or a lot of uh, visualizations or a lot of things happening. And the attention can be quite present with each one as it occurs by itself. Note it, know what's happening. Don't try to hold on to the breath at all. It's just another form of trying to control experience. And um, there can be times, I know I'll take two breaths, I'll take two breaths, and it might be 20 minutes before I'm noting breath again, but I've been noting consistently, steadily that whole time. Like, but it's just so many different things are happening. So if a lot's happening, though, and you can be with it, know what's happening, see what happens to it, fine. If you're trying to be with a lot of sensations and it turns into a mishmash and you don't know what's happening, and you know, a lot of them say, you know, you're nowhere. You're not able to land on it or note it. That's when you'd consolidate and go back to the breath. Similarly, uh, if there's a lot happening, not to try and stay with the sensation to the end. In a way, that's a kind of a holding on. There's going to be times when no matter what you do, you don't see the endings of things. You know, and you can't change that. And then there's times you only be with something in the middle and just when you note tingling you know a pain arises somewhere else and just when you note burning you know itching arises and it's just like that the mind doesn't like that it wants to know I'll just stay with this until it ends and then that it's just not like that sometimes Um, but again if it's going really fast and you can't tell what's happening that's when you come back to the breath but then let go of it and open up again when you notice a lot She discovered uh, she had a strong pain, and when she went back to the breath and just really stayed and got into the breath, the pain became secondary, and that was quite wonderful. 
Now she's afraid. <laughs> you know what she's afraid of. Um, it could be used as a form of avoidance or control. But it also can be skillful. See, this is what's so complicated. Um, especially since you just came, so it's sort of what's happening for you is, I think, different than what's happening for Elizabeth. So that's why these question periods are very tricky. You can't take what's said to one person and necessarily apply it to you. In working with strong physical pain like that, it most likely isn't going to change really quickly or just go away when you notice it, especially early on in a retreat. And there's a balance between moving into it, noticing it very carefully and gently, but fully present with it, noting it, noticing whether it's burning or tingling, what happens to it, with a mind that's non-reactive, just being there. And when it lasts some time, the mind can begin to tighten, you begin to get aversive, or you're just fighting with it. It's skillful then to go back to the breath and let that pain recede and reconnect and refocus and calm with the breath. That can be very skillful. When you again notice the pain, though, it's not to hide in the breath, but to then move back, explore it as if it's for the first time, and then again back to the breath as a way to keep the attention soft and pliable, but not to avoid what's unpleasant by just staying with the breath. Does that make sense? And keep talking about it in your interviews, too, because it'll... It'll clarify. Okay. Did anyone yesterday say anything about the interviews in here? No. Any questions about your practice? Notice how even sitting inside we're so affected by the wind. Mm -hmm. Really, this we're not separate at all. I think it's interesting to notice. Say something about merit, how, what the term means in the context of practice. Um, Joseph said just a little bit, um, I don't know if it was, when it was, it was helpful. It always seems like a little hunky to me. And he said, well, it's not gold stars, and that helped. And then he said, it is, and then I forgot what he said. <laughs> Questions about merit, to say a little bit about it. I actually, um, I don't think I'm the right person to ask, to tell you the truth. It's, I'm just being really honest. It's a concept that I don't relate to very well. Um, and so I, I actually uh, don't want to say something because I don't think I could be that helpful. Kent. I've got a question, but I'll give you a preliminary question. Let's see if you want to answer this <laughs> <laughs> about refers to Joseph's talk last night. He, he read us a short sutra at the Anuradha. Anuradha. You familiar with that one? It shows that he doesn't even exist. The question is about what, what's the status of the Buddha in the, in the future. All right, yeah. The key to the whole thing is it says the five scandals don't. Uh, they're all impermanent. And the guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get to consciousness. <laughs> is, the consciousness is, is consciousness permanent or impermanent? And yeah, 
But wait a minute, that's wait. not my experience. I mean, it may be somebody's experience. No, wait, is this you talking now or the yeah, sutta? Yeah, Okay, okay. If we all believe that, we'd have been enlightened forthwith. I mean, all our, the whole dharma is contained in that. Yeah. yeah. So it's a sticking point there for me. Mm-hmm. Is that? Let me ask you a two-part question. If you want to <laughs> what does it mean to say that consciousness is impermanent? And even if it is, why is that unsatisfactory? <laughs> I mean, why is that dukkha automatically, necessarily? Okay. His, his question is, is relating to the sutta Joseph read last night about each the five skandhas being impermanent. And so he's saying, uh, in his own experience, he doesn't experience consciousness as being impermanent. And if it was, if it I mean, was rapidly rising and passing, right. why is that necessarily unsatisfactory? Why is that unsatisfactory if it is impermanent? Yeah. Okay. The first part, um, you said, you know, if we all understood that, of course, we'd be enlightened. True. (laughs) That's true. And just because, okay, so if you don't experience consciousness as being impermanent, and I think that's the whole point of our practice, not just consciousness, but any of the five skandhas, for example, even if we intellectually understand or think we understand that it is impermanent or we intellectually say no it's not neither one of those makes much difference the whole thing of the practice the reason we do this is to keep exploring keep looking really with an open mind to really viscerally over and over experience what is your actual experience consciousness of whichever of the skandhas and if you don't experience it as as impermanent, that's great because you're really looking at what you are able to tell for yourself and not trying to make your experience fit an image. And so if you keep looking, I think you'll you'll see that it is impermanent, but it's so subtle. I mean, all of the skandhas are arising and passing I mean, much more rapidly than that. And in, in some ways, consciousness, that arising of knowing that arises together with whatever is known, is a very subtle uh, thing to even notice, to have that be the main uh, thing we're aware of. It's, it's very subtle. And so then the identification with it is also quite easy to arise, that sense of I know. And even though the knowing is coming and going, somehow that identification can easily come with each knowing, and there's this sense of continuity that actually isn't there. You know, it's sort of like strung together as a subtle memory from each last one. But the most important thing is not to believe it because you hear it, but, but keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. And if, even if it is so, why is that unsatisfactory? And you could think of unsatisfactory uh, not necessarily in the nature of immense suffering, but unsatisfactory in the nature of there's, there's nowhere to rest, there's nowhere to take a stand, there is nothing, but just this constant, constant moving, and the sense of satisfaction being a term of some place to, ah, and there isn't, there isn't. So I, I take it personally in that level of unsatisfactory. Yeah. So don't think about all this too much. Just keep looking. Keep, just keep looking. 
Especially in silence, please. Especially in silence. Questions about <clears throat> anger arising in the mind and heart, especially in relationship to other people here, something I'm sure no one else has experienced during these weeks. <laughs> and <laughs> how to deal how to deal with it. Um, one thing was she did was try compassion, which often doesn't cut it at that moment. Another was sort of saying, Well, it's my ego bumping against the other person's and that didn't do it. And of course, I was thinking actually, you said bumping into it. Maybe someone's used that image before of how they clean potatoes in Korea or something from all in a huge, big, big barrel of water and just keep stirring them around and bump them all into each other. And that way they get clean. So, uh, for some reason, that occurred to me in the sitting room. <laughs> I must have been picking something up. <laughs> It's really, the thing is coming back to the fact of the anger in your own experience. Both of the things you said are sort of rationalizations. And uh, compassion at someone when we're actually angry is a way of trying to sidestep accepting the anger. And it doesn't work for just that reason. You know, may you be free from suffering. You're the one who's suffering. And so... (laughs) (laughs) Compassion to yourself might, but the first step really is to just tune in to your own body-mind experience and accept and tune in to the fact that anger is arising. Feel it in the body. Notice it in the mind. Keep coming back to the physical experience. I would note really very clearly because that can help you stay there and not go off into the story. If the story's hooked into self-righteousness, yes, they really are. That person really is acting like a jerk. That self-righteousness can really keep feeding it. And so it's not a matter, and often here in the silence, it works both ways. Because of the silence, you can't really work it out with the person. I actually think that's a gift, because then we come back and really deal with what's going on in ourself about it. And whether or not, it seems justified in terms of the situation, unless something you know, incredibly harmful is going on. Mostly there's no need to say something. And it's really a chance to work with the experience of anger in ourself. And it's, it's not easy. You know, it's really painful. So it's really pulling back that sense of needing to blame, needing to figure out who's right and who's wrong, you know, which is so much what we try to do. And knowing, not that in the world, of course, we wouldn't, if there were anger, be able to get in touch with our own anger, see what's clearly so, not act out of a sort of deluded attachment or fear from the anger. But when you can really be centered in the experience of anger, be with it, let it come, it does fade, 
And then we can act in a more appropriate way without all the fire in the mind of anger. And so here there's just a lot of opportunity to be with what comes up in ourself and take back the blame that we are so easy to put out on whatever the situation is or the other person. And not blaming oneself either. Seeing there's this constituation of conditions have come together and I am really angry. Okay, feel the anger, that's okay. It's simply coming up. We don't have to hate it and we don't try to sidestep it. But really be in it, but not be driven by it. And notice it doesn't last all that long. It might come and go, but it doesn't consume us necessarily the way we think. It might feel like it for a while, but it and that, that's really our work, really our work here. It's a good one. And if, just a practical note, if you feel it is consuming you and you're going to do something, then please talk to one of the teachers rather than act, because we think we're acting when we're calm and often we're not. And that's the, one of the reasons we really beg everyone just to kind of stay in your own experience because it's so easy <coughs> to, we do affect each other so much anyway, and in, in reaching out to even do what we think is nice, we have no idea what space the other person's in, you know. And so it can like really escalate amazingly because you, you guys don't know. You don't know how really sensitive and open you are now. And the slightest nuance, you know, it just sets up huge reverberations in, in each other's minds and bodies. It's just, just how it is right now. Carol, why is it that Mm-hmm. Than we realize. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that that's true from experience. Mm-hmm. But why does this just feel like normal everyday life? <laughs> 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 I mean, in a way, now it actually is normal everyday life for the next few weeks. I mean, it's just—I mean, it's just the same. Like I see things, I hear things, I feel things, I think things. You know, I don't talk, I don't read or anything. Uh-huh. But you know, I always have a sense at the end of a retreat that I wasted my time. <laughs> really, and I've done like 15 retreats, and at the end of each retreat, it feels like a waste of my time. And often it takes months. And I'm still seeing subtle changes, subtle um, ways I'm relating to life differently. And, and I've never really understood why. It just, you just can't see that happening when you're in the middle of it. Do you know what I'm asking? Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah. He's asking why does it seem so normal? And why can't we tell in the middle of it what's going on? Why can't we be objective? I just wonder when you say you feel like you've wasted your time at the end of each retreat, but then you see changes later, does that kind of, well, then you don't feel like you wasted your time later? Or? No, it's, it's just a feeling I have. I used to think oh, yeah. But you kept coming back, yeah. Now, now I've progressed to the point where they just feel like a waste of time. <laughs>
Right. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Actually, in a way, in my mind, you answered your own question. The saying that you know, feeling it's a waste of time is an impression you have. You know that's not actually how it is for you. That's sort of how it is on retreat. We, we're not objective because we're not objective. We're identified. We are so in the middle of experience, whatever our particular experience is, even though that can change wildly from day to day. But we're so in the middle of it, and, and we're getting really so inside and so delicate and so really kind of subtle in what we're experiencing that we, we're not relating to our experience as if from an outside reference point, you know, which, because we're saying, you know, quit comparing, quit thinking about what it was like six months ago and what it'll be like if you were in the IGA. Just be totally here in this experience. And so without that, outer reference point, there isn't really anything to compare to. So one, yes, it feels like daily life. And in the other way, you don't really have the tools here, and it wouldn't be so helpful anyway to be trying to assess, well, what's actually going on? That's one thing. And the other is, it's sort of like, you know, you're in a boat and you put out to sea and you've lost sight of the shore, which is sort of your daily life. And you haven't come to the other shore, which is sort of back in your daily life. You just, and the little things that happen at sea are everything. And there's, there's nothing to bounce it off of to see. So, for example, when something happens and you get angry and you might get so furious. And if you could compare it to, well, in daily life, if that person cut across my walking path, would I be murderous? <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but the experience is so vivid, it's so real, you know, that we don't stop and make that comparison, which is fine. It's not necessarily helpful to make it. It's more just go into the anger and be there. But we are losing touch with sort of our, our daily life, uh, our regular ways that we assess experience. And since everyone else is doing the same thing, it seems really normal. You don't. Okay. To stop. <laughs> So, have a normal day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, talk, talk. Tonight, there will be a talk tonight, but there won't be a talk tomorrow night. <laughs> Not normal. Pretend today's tomorrow. Are there any questions this morning? <coughs> This is it, the last moment, the peak moment of your whole retreat. One thing I just uh, wanted to say, sort of as an adjunct to Michelle's talk last night, there's still quite a lot of time left in this retreat. 
But it might be a good point, and just sort of a feeling I've been getting um, sitting here and talking to people, it might be a good point to, in a very gentle way, notice if you've fallen into certain habits of how you're relating to your practice, either certain, not routine, nothing necessarily wrong with a routine, but it can become a rut. And a rut can be comfortable even though it might be difficult. You might have established a certain habit of how you're relating to practice that, for instance, might have felt like wise effort and now is really pushing. Or you might have had to back off a while ago and now you're in a routine of being good to yourself, but you're actually really spacing along. You know, and it's sort of our minds so easily uh, forget that each moment is fresh and new and we think we've discovered the right, the right balance and we don't have to look anymore. You know, we don't like it that every single moment requires fresh presence and fresh looking. So I don't seem to make a big deal out of this, but it's something I've noticed in my practice a lot. It's very easy to think I've got it figured out and be in some kind of rut, hide in a rut, even though it's not a comfortable one. So, please continue. Before um, any questions, I just yeah, way in the back. That you don't really feel attached to, you said? Well, yeah, it seemed like the difference that I could figure out was that the tension, the kind of good kind, a person is not attached to. But the kind that I had was desire. So what happened? Questions about working with intention or noticing intention and he had the intention, he made the intention to have a seamless day and had a terrible morning. I wondered if the intention was one of desire instead of a so-called good intention. I think it's complicated. Um, for one thing, intention is arising in almost every moment. So I could say, I have the intention to have a seamless day. That could be arising as desire in that moment an intention associated with desire. It could be an intention associated with resolution, which is skillful, or intention associated with aversion. That thought manifesting as intention could be associated with many different mental states. It might have been a skillful one or not. You know, I can't know not being there. It might have been associated with desire. 
But even if it's extremely skillful, resolute, I will have a seamless day. That's arising in one mind moment. That intention, that single one alone, it cannot control what happens in the day. You know, it's like the next mind moment, that intention might not arise. Uh, uh, An unpleasant sensation might arise. There's aversion. And there isn't really the intention, say, to notice it, and we get carried off. So it's, it's, it's much more complex because so many intentions arise with every thought, every speech, every action. We're not going to notice them all. And each of them can be associated with any of the mental states. So not to be discouraged. I mean, sometimes it sounds like like in the story of the strength of the bodhisattva's intention last night, you know, I will someday be a Buddha. Well, that didn't happen that morning, you know. It was eons and eons and eons of so many lifetimes and so many ups and downs. That intention might have run like a thread arising over and over and over and over again in all those lifetimes, along with, you know, fear and lust and hatred and generosity and all the other things. It arose again. That intention could make it likely for the similar intention to arise in the next moment and for another similar one to arise in a later moment. So it's sort of a thread of conditionality of cause and effect. It's not that same one intention. But the strength of it could make it arise again. Just as the strength of, say, our intention to be mindful here, that might give rise to mindfulness in the next moment, and then the next moment might be a total space out. Suddenly, we wake up again and mindful. Again, there's the intention of mindfulness arising on the strength of it having been conditioned. But it's not the same one making it happen. It's happening over and over and over. One moment conditions the next. So a clear intention like having a seamless day, that doesn't mean the day is going to automatically be seamless. But you might notice you're spacing out 10 minutes later, half an hour later, and it would make it easier for the intention, right, I want to really be clear today, to arise again, and to arise again later the next time you notice you're spacing out. Did you see what I mean? It's, it's much more complicated than just, I have it and then it happens. And when we don't notice or make a clear intention, then the intention for discouragement, the intention for restlessness arises. We don't notice it, and the next moment's more restless. Another intention and restlessness arises. The next moment's more, the next moment's more. We're not noticing it, but intentions are still arising and strengthening the uh, ease with which that mental state arises again in another moment. I think I'll leave it. Just, just um, not to be discouraged more as a way to turn the attention, attention back and really notice if you can tell what intention is feeding or manifesting in a moment and then the next moment. We can never rest on the past moment and this moment and this moment.
She's saying the mind and body seem to be separate in that um, two different things actually, it's two different things happening. One, suddenly she feels uh, physical expression of emotion, but there's actually no mental or emotional content. So it's physical experience basically. And so there's no emotional or mental trigger. And other times experiencing very strong, ugly thoughts, but no um, physical or even emotional manifestation. They just come and go like a flower. Um, I wouldn't say that means that the mind and body are disconnected. I mean, those are two very different experiences. And uh, sometimes we can have emotion that expresses itself physically, and there is no story going with it. It's just what it is. We're so used to having a story, we want to make one up. And I would even caution you, there's times I've experienced what I would call call fear in the body, but when I really looked, it wasn't fear. There was no fear going on. It was just physical manifestation that had nothing actually to do with fear, and I was calling it fear out of old conditioning. So I would look, if you can have a strong physical manifestation, feels like anxiety, but you really look, and there's no anxiety. It's simply physical experience. There, it's not separate from mind because the knowing of that is nama, is the mind. There's the knowing and there's the physical experience. They're not separated. But it's not always that you know there's an emotion and there's a feeling in the body and they have to happen together, or that every feeling means an emotion. And similarly with thoughts, what you're experiencing is really just the fact a thought just arises and passes. It can be just like a balloon. It just comes and goes, and the content makes no difference at all. You weren't identified with that thought. It just kind of, oh, that was really ugly. Oh, that was really beautiful. Gone. Nothing. And again, at that moment, that isn't a physical experience. That's that's a mental experience. But it doesn't have to be that we grip on and have an identified emotional reaction to every thought that appears. In fact, it's beginning to see that thoughts arise, as sounds arise, as sensations arise, as smells arise. No difference. So that's quite common. Yeah, I'm just saying, don't assume 
something like I have a little quiver, oh, anxiety. They're saying, really look, don't assume. You know, we make so many assumptions from past conditioning. It's a lot of what keeps us in our not seeing clearly, in our delusion. So I'm not saying it is or isn't anxiety, but really look, don't assume. Don't assume it's your be with the actual bare experience without any interpretation. You know, and just see what happens to it, how it behaves. Watch it come and go. Okay, it's time for um, walking. Oh, and just in case you didn't notice on the board, tonight uh, there'll be a guided Brahma Vihara, and tomorrow night there'll be a talk. But this is Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.